uh, when he was introducing himself and introducing RUF that um, we're glad you're here. If you are not a Christian and um, are just checking out Christianity, we hope this is a place that you that, that feels safe for you, where you can ask your questions. And if you are a Christian, we, we hope the same thing. This is a place that you feel safe to ask questions, um, explore your doubts, um, and uh, wrestle with the claims of Christianity. Um, this is Easter week, as you all know, and um, if you are in town this weekend, um, Mary Clark and I are going to be having a brunch, uh, Easter lunch on Sunday, and we would love to have you all there. Um, I think 3 o'clock, is that what we said? 3 o'clock on Easter Sunday. I'm gonna send an, it's going to be an email tomorrow, and there will be like an RSVP so that we can make enough food for everybody. Um, but we would love to have you all over for lunch on Sunday, um, Easter Sunday. Um, so, um, this week as I was, as I was preparing for, uh, for tonight, I was thinking a little bit about freedom and, um, the ways in which we feel free and don't feel free. Um, and realizing that in a lot of times in our relationships, we, there's things that we want to do or say that we just don't feel free to do. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like, um, there's not feeling the freedom to tell people we love something or, um, feeling inhibited in, uh, in putting ourselves out there to care for somebody. Um, as I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about um, over Christmas break, my dad invited me to go to a Bible study with him, um, and, which was really encouraging. Um, my, my father um, became a Christian when I was in college, and, um, and so it's been a real joy and privilege for me to, to see him um, learn to be a Christian and, and what that looks like for his life. And so he invites me to this Bible study. And, um, afterwards another man came up and put his arm around him and looked me in the eye and said, I love your dad. I love your father. And I said, yeah, he's pretty great. Um, and I just like, I couldn't, um, for whatever reason, I didn't feel the freedom to, to like be vulnerable in that moment. And I think probably cause I thought I would have cried if I'd said it in response, but I was just scared to actually have that freedom to say back to that guy. Yeah. I love my dad too. Um, and that's something that I, that, that sat with me for a little bit because I, I, I wrestled with that of why was it that I didn't feel the freedom to, to honestly say what I felt, what was going on in my heart? Why did I feel in, inhibited? Why did I feel scared or in fear? Um, and tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about that, about freedom, about um, the unique freedom that the Christian faith offers and um, the freedom that, that we have as Christians. Um, that, and what we're going to see as we read tonight, that there's both the freedom to love and a freedom to lament. So um, this semester, or the second half of the semester after spring break, we are reading the book of Ruth together. And so this we're going to be reading for these last six weeks of the semester. And tonight we're going to be finishing up the first chapter of the book. And Ruth, if you're unfamiliar with it, is a short book in the Old Testament that is found between Judges on one side and First and Second Samuel on the other side. And Judges is a book about the chaos of sin, what the world looks like when it's plunged into chaos. Um, and it is story after story of chaos. And then First and Second Samuel are the books about the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And Ruth is situated between these two and is a bridge from chaos to the kingdom of God. 
And what Ruth affirms again and again that that bridge from the chaos of sin to the kingdom of God is formed in God's love. That it's God as his love, as, he, as his people embody his love, um, that the world moves from chaos um, into the kingdom. Um, and so we're in the first chapter of Ruth, and um, as the scene is set for us, as we read last week, it focuses in on this woman, Naomi. Now, Naomi is an Israelite woman who lives with her husband, Elimelech. They live in Bethlehem, and a famine hits Bethlehem, and so they decide to sojourn, to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. And Moab is a region about like a seven or ten day walk east out of the promised land. Um, and the Moabites were the enemies of Israel. And so they leave because of famine. They go into Moab. Um, Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. Um, and while they're there, they get married. They're there for about 10 years. Mal, um, they get married uh, to these women, Orpah and Ruth. And then um, while they're there, people start dying. Malon and Kilion die. Elimelech dies. And then we're left with with Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, three widows, um, foreigners. Naomi is a foreigner in, in Moab. And um, the women are actually working out in the fields, trying to, trying to scrap money together. And then they hear from other workers in the fields that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. And so Naomi decides to head back. And out of her love for her daughters-in-law, she sets them free to return to Moab to find new husbands and to find the security in life that she can't provide. And so that's where our story picks up tonight. Um, and if you have a yellow piece of paper with you, uh, what we're reading is on the back of it. We're going to be reading Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through 22. And as we read this tonight, I want us to see two things. That in both Ruth and Naomi, the author gives us these two pictures of faith. And that here we see that faith produces freedom. And that the, fruit, the freedom it produces in Ruth and Naomi could not be more different. They're very, very different pictures of freedom. So let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through 22. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask now that you would send your spirit amongst us, that we would um, make sense of it together and see Jesus in it. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so what we're going to see tonight is that in in Naomi, Naomi, she's not in the story. Um, In Naomi, we see that her faith gives her the freedom to lament. And in Ruth, we see that her faith, Ruth's faith, gives her the freedom to love. So we often throw around around phrases. As Christians, we throw around phrases. You say stuff like, so-and-so is such a strong Christian. Or she has such a strong faith. But what are our marks of judging other people's faith? Is it that we see them doing lots of Christian things, like they go to, the, they go to Bible study, they go to RUF, they go to church? Um, or is it that they always have a smile on their face, their glass is always half full? Um, how do you think we would judge Naomi's faith today? All right, look at verse 13. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In verse 18 and 19, um, she leads us to believe, or this leads us to believe that Naomi makes the journey with Ruth back to Bethlehem in silence. And then in verse 20, when she arrives back in Bethlehem, she says, I'm not happy, I'm bitter. God has dealt bitterly with me. I think if Naomi were to walk into Wake Forest today, this week, with this kind of honesty, people would have no idea what to do with her, right? Um, People definitely wouldn't think that she was a Christian. But if we long, um, if we look to these things to measure our faith, we're doing it wrong. Because Christian faith is not about how strong your faith is, but it, how strong the object of your faith is. I was walking through Davis Field today, and I sat on one of the swings, the one that says mood. I don't, I don't know why, how they put those, why it says mood. I don't know what that means. Um, so I sat down on one of the swings, and um, I felt like the swing was going to break under me. Um, don't sit on the mood swing. Uh, break under me, and I grabbed the ropes hard because I was afraid it was going to break. It didn't. It was just creaking. Um, and I was able to relax into it. And the same is true for the Christian faith. It's not about our ability to hold onto the ropes. Um, it's about the strength of the swing to hold us. It's not about believing harder. It's not the strength of your faith that's, that holds you, but the strength of the object of your faith. And Naomi, trusting God through faith, is freed to be honest in how broken her life is. And the Bible calls this lament. To be honest with the sadness and the brokenness of your life Um, how things haven't turned out the way you wanted them to. Then we've got this great scene in verses 19 through 21 where Naomi walks into Bethlehem and the ladies of the town are all giddy with excitement, chatting about her returning. She's been gone for 10 years. These are probably childhood friends, people she grew up with. Is that Naomi? They exclaim. Verse 19, it says the town was stirred. And this is literally the town was echoing with excitement. There's this buzz about town. And so she's walking into this situation where these people she grew up with are excited to see her. They're excited to hear how she's doing. And she doesn't say, I'm fine. She doesn't spin it to talk about how things will get better. She's honest. She says, don't call me pleasant. My name is now bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And Naomi's honesty with the people in Bethlehem and her, her willingness to question God reveals that she actually has a very strong faith. Because for Naomi, God is real. Look at verse 21. When Naomi recounts the bitterness of her life, she leaves nothing to chance, nothing to bad luck, nothing to circumstances. She believes that God is fully in control. 
She uses this word here that's translated for us, almighty. And this is a, an old, old word for God um, that refers to his sovereignty. This is the one who is sovereign and in control. That's who she's talking about. And in verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The almighty has brought calamity upon me. And this is a statement of faith. Um, in the words of Job, uh, the one there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this man who suffered greatly. And he says, the Lord both gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so to turn this to us, um, do you, do you feel the freedom to question God? Do you feel the freedom to lament? The freedom to be honest about how things aren't going the way that you thought they'd go? Um, what, would it, what would it look like for you to have the type of faith that freed you to talk to God and others this way? So we see that Naomi's faith gives her the freedom to lament. And Ruth's faith gives her the freedom to love. Look at verse 16 with me. Ruth commands Naomi to stop telling her to go away. In the space of just a few minutes, Naomi has told Ruth to return to Moab four times. And in response to this, in response to this, her telling her to go and to go and to go and to go, Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Y'all, this is a crazy vow. Ruth is trapping herself in a relationship with Naomi. Now, this word trapped makes us uncomfortable, right? When we say someone is trapped in a relationship, we usually mean that it's bad. There was a relationship that was good that has now turned into something bad and someone is trapped. But how is Ruth's relationship with Naomi different from the way that we think about being trapped? Right? Naomi here um, frees Ruth to leave, like frees her, sends her off. And Ruth traps herself in. Ruth burns her passport and walks home with Naomi. And something happened to Ruth that freed her to love Naomi this way. One commentator says this. He says, um, your people will be my, pa- my people and your God my God. This is a radical thought because it signals that Ruth is changing her identity in a world where that was almost inconceivable. The ancient world had no mechanism for religious conversion or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood defined one's ethnic identity, and this could be no more changed than the color of one's skin. People did not um, convert. People did not change religion. They did not move places. If Ruth returns to Moab and then worship the, uh, the Moab's gods after Naomi's death, if she goes back... Um, then her commitment to the Lord here would be empty, shallow, or just for the sake of human love. But Ruth puts God and not love at the center of her love for Naomi. And something happened to Ruth along the way that led her to trap herself in a relationship with Naomi. C.S. Lewis, who is an author um, and a professor in Oxford, England in the 20th century, he tells a story of being on a bus in Oxford in 1926. And being suspended somewhere between atheism and the Christian faith. And he recounts the moment where God closed in on him. He writes this. He says, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like a corset or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. 
I felt myself being there and there, there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet I did not really, it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. By the time that Lewis got off that bus, he had become a Christian. And the author of Ruth doesn't tell us the moment when Ruth was given faith, but instead she shows us the freedom it produces and what Ruth does with that freedom. She forsakes her home. She forsakes her future in Moab. She traps herself in love with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so we see how faith gave Naomi and Ruth freedom. Right? For Naomi, faith gave her the freedom to lament. And for Ruth, faith gave her the freedom to love. And faith, faith frees these women. Well, how? How does faith free us? The Bible answers this question with the word justification. What is justification? Um, Jason Harris, who's a former RUF campus minister and a pastor in New York, describes it this way. He writes, George Bernard Shaw described life in startling terms when he wrote in one of his plays, the lives which have no use, no meaning, no purpose will fade out. You have to justify your existence or you will perish. In In our global information age of limitless possibilities, the freedom to be anything has turned into the expectation to be everything. And as a result, many of us feel relentless pressure to justify our existence or perish. So we try to establish our value by making more money, enhancing our sex appeal, gaining more influence, improving our image. But despite our attempts to prove our worth, we never seem to measure up. Christianity acknowledges our predicament and challenges us to see that the justification we crave cannot be achieved by ourselves through our own efforts, but can only be received from God as a gift. So what is justification? The justification or the righteousness of God is a rich term in Scripture that describes an attribute that God possesses, an action he performs, and a status he bestows. Technically, it's just a word um, that is borrowed from the world of law, which is the opposite to condemnation. Right? To condemn someone it means to declare them guilty, but to justify someone means to declare them not guilty or innocent or righteous. And the way that Jesus describes justification is by telling a story. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus tells the parable um, to this group of people, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And this is what Jesus says. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, tax collectors were the notoriously corrupt mobsters of the first century because they corroborated with the Romans occupying Palestine to exhort money from their own people. 
And Pharisees, by contrast, were almost as widely popular as tax collectors were despised because the Pharisees refused to compromise on either political or moral grounds. See, everything that the Pharisee said about himself in this parable was true. He was faithful in his relationships. He was devout to his religious practice. He was concerned about issues of justice. And unlike the tax collector, he would never have dreamed of taking advantage of others through extortion. It seems obvious then which of these two men deserves God's approval and acceptance, right? Um, The Old Testament taught that judges should justify the innocent and should condemn the guilty, meaning they should declare the innocent person innocent and the guilty person guilty. Anything less would be utterly reprehensible to God and a serious miscarriage of justice. So why does Jesus make the shocking claim that the self-described guilty man went home justified rather than the other? Both men went up the temple to pray to God, but the difference between the two was that the Pharisee tried to justify himself, where the tax collector knew that he couldn't. The Pharisee proudly relied on himself and his own merit, but the tax collector humbly relied on God and his mercy. That's the key. The Pharisee may have performed well outwardly, but he failed to consider the attitudes of self-righteousness and judgmentalism and hypocrisy that were lurking within himself. And the tax collector, by contrast, he saw himself for who he truly was. He recognized the ways in which he had offended God. And so he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God responded by acquitting him and sending him home justified. So how does God justify us? How can God justify the ungodly, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4? The tax collector could have only guessed But we know for certain because the way in which God justifies the tax collector is the same way in which he he justifies us. When the tax collector prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, he literally asks, God, let me be atoned. God, let my sins be covered. And that is precisely what God does. On the cross, Jesus takes our place and dies as our substitute so that he might cover our sin. Paul sums up this amazing exchange in 2 Corinthians 5, where he writes, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God charges our sin to Jesus so that he might charge Jesus' righteousness to us. In other words, God counts Jesus, the truly innocent one, guilty, so that he might count us, the truly guilty ones, innocent. So what do we need to do? What do you need to do in order to be justified? Nothing at all. All we must do is recognize our need for Jesus, receive what he has done for us, and the way in which we do this is through faith. Faith is a means by which the benefits of what Jesus did there and then in history become ours here and now in the present. And our faith does not add or contribute anything to our justification. The whole point is that we can't justify ourselves. Faith receives what God gives, and what God gives is himself. As Martin Luther put it, faith takes hold of Christ just as a ring encloses a jewel. Faith simply receives Christ and along with him all the sparkling beauties of his gospel. And so the critical factor there is not our strength, not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. When we lay hold of Christ, faith unites us to him so profoundly that everything that is true for him becomes true for us. Luther used a metaphor of marriage to illustrate how this works. And he writes that when a bride and groom are married, everything they have, the good as well as the bad, they hold in common. 
And in the analogy, Luther colorfully describes us as an unfaithful bride and Jesus as our groom. But when faith comes between us, everything that is ours becomes Christ and everything that is Christ becomes ours. Jesus there takes our sin and guilt and gives us his righteousness and innocence. This is justification. This is what happens when we lay hold of Christ by faith. And justification produces freedom. Fleming Rutledge, um, who was a pastor in the Episcopal Church, she puts it this way. She says, um, two teenagers, imagine this, two teenagers hear the same message and they go out for a walk. And after hearing this message, one says she feels so liberated by the power of the gospel that she is finally free. She's finally going to be free from her addiction to smoking. And the other girl stops her and says, I was also so moved by the talk. I've never smoked a day in my life, but now I feel so free from all those rules. I think I'll try out smoking now. Right? And this is what we see in Ruth and Naomi. Naomi, freed by God's grace, is free to lament, to fall apart, to be honest about her bitterness. She wasn't worried about her appearance in front of these other women. Right? She was totally free. And do you want this freedom? Do you want to be freed from the shackles of shame that prevent you from honestly sharing your lives with each other? Jesus has accomplished this for you. The gospel frees you to be honest with each other and to stop telling each other that you're fine all the time. And in, in Ruth, who deliberately sabotages her own future in Moab, who throws it all away, who burns her passport and chooses a life that doesn't look good on a resume. Freed by God's grace, she was free to trap herself in love with Naomi. To not love Naomi because of what she could get from that relationship, but to love her because she knew the love of God. Y'all, the gospel frees you to do things that, that don't go on your resume. To do things that you won't get anything in return. But to do them simply because you are thankful for what God has done for you in Jesus. And you want to respond the reason why you're trying, the reason why you're trying to get everything to fit on your resume, it's because you're terrified of being judged and found wanting, right? And the reason why you're, you're not honest with your friends about how you're really doing, it's because you're terrified of being judged and rejected. And I know this is true because this is true for me too, right? When your righteousness is your own, when it's not something you produce, or when your righteousness is your own and it is something you produce, you live in fear. You live in fear and not in freedom because you're worried that you can do something to screw it up. But when your righteousness is given to you by someone else, you are completely free. Free to be honest with the ways your life actually is and to talk about the way in which you and your world are broken. And free to take risks in loving people regardless of whether or not it will do anything for your resume. Regardless if you get anything in return. As I said at the beginning, it's Holy Week this week. Um, This is a week when Christians celebrate Jesus' passion. Um, On Friday, we celebrate his death, where um, Jesus went to the cross for sin. And then on Sunday is Easter Sunday, where we we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And what we celebrate on Easter Sunday is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he isn't in the tomb. And Christians celebrate this not because it's a neat magic trick or because it makes us feel good. We celebrate it because of what it shows us has happened. Jesus was released from death and God raised him from the dead because Jesus accomplished salvation. 
In his body, he took everything in you and about you that deserves condemnation. And he was condemned in your place on the cross. And in the place of your condemnation, he offers you his life, which is yours through faith. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are the God of justification. Um, this word that contains this, this beautiful reality of what you have done for us in Jesus. That you free us from the shackles of condemnation. That we would live lives of freedom in response to your love to us. I pray for my friends here and ask that you would work this deep um, into all of our hearts. That we would believe this. Lord, free us as you free Naomi and Ruth um, to live lives in response to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.